0: Well, it's wonderful to have with us uh, today our very special guest, Dr. Joel Gregory. He's here with his wife, Joanne, and uh, he's not only going to be ministering at our morning service and our afternoon service, but he's coming back this evening uh, for our evening service with a another message. And tonight we have... Uh, Duane who will be doing a worship set. It'll be time for ministry as well. Uh, Joel has ministered at Kensington Temple a number of times before, and he taught a preaching masterclass uh, at our Bible school uh, that was very well received. And uh, just to introduce him to, if you don't, if you're not aware of him, he holds the George W. Truett Endowed Chair in Preaching and Evangelism at the George Truett Theological Seminary of Baylor University in the United States. Last year he spoke or taught 170 times in 32 churches and 20 conferences in 18 states uh, in, in America Greece, Oxford, and now Notting Hill Gate. He's just completed a sabbatical at Regent's Park College, Oxford University. In fact, he and Joanne have come to us today uh, from Oxford University, teaching there, and then a short trip this week in Israel. He has uh, his Proclaimers Place seminars have been conducted in 17 states: Oxford, Paris, Rome, and Athens, with more than 74 day seminars. Seminars and more than 100 pastors trained over the last 10 years. It's wonderful to have him with us again. Let's give him and Joanna a warm Kensington Temple welcome.
1: Good morning, Kensington Temple. It is a delight to be back with you here today, yet even still once again, and with friends uh, in this church family and this vital work. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Texas where uh, I live, work, and worship at Bailey University, the largest Christian research university in the United States. And it is indeed a great joy to be back here. Thank you for the warm welcome uh, and the opportunity to speak the Word of God to you here today. If I were to write a subject over this message, it would be huh, the power of being A one-thing person. Would you open the Word of God with me in Holy Scripture to Philippians chapter (laughs) 1. If you'd been there on the deck of a small ship, you would have seen a man named Epaphroditus with a scroll inside his tunic. What he would have been carrying from Rome back to Philippi would have been the world's most famous thank you note. It's called Philippians. He hadn't seen the people in 10 years, and he was writing to tell them how he was in prison in Rome because they had sent him a love offering to sustain him. They were worried about him his health and his welfare. So in the first chapter of this thank you note, verse 12, Paul writes back, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard and all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, As always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And then here it is. The power of being a one thing person. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. They're those persons in history that we know because of a single significant salient thing that they said. Some of them belong to centuries ago. Louis XIV, the son king of France who lived in the palace at Versailles, famously said, I am the state. (laughs) Churchill's great word. (laughs) Never have so much. so many own so much to so few and many other memorable phrases. In the States, we tend to know people by their initials who are identified with a single phrase. Theodore Roosevelt, TR, said, walk softly and carry a big stick. Or FDR, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. <laughs> or JFK, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. MLK, I have a dream. We know them by their initials because they said one thing, but the greatest of all one thing people is this follower of Jesus, Paul, who here in a single sentence says, The power of being a one thing person. For me to live is Christ. I wouldn't want to be presumptuous and only know a few people here if I could sit down across from you and talk with you. We would discover together that peace, power, poise, well-being, and meaning in life are directly related to the degree you are a one thing person. H.G. Wells in one of his novels had a character called Mr. Polly and he said of Mr. Polly, he wasn't so much a human being as a walking civil war. (laughs) The gavel was not in the hand of anybody in his personality. Even the great German Christian Dietrich Bonhoeffer worried who am I? One thing today, tomorrow another. The degree to which you're able to live a life of meaning is the degree to which you become a one thing person. <laughs> it's interesting to note what Paul didn't say here on the front of this message because we might hear him wrong. He didn't say for me to live is the church. <laughs> This is a great church. Paul gave his life to founding churches. He put one hand down in, in Roman Palestine, another down in Spain, founded churches, wrote churches, prayed for churches, but he didn't say, "For me to live is the church. Church' not a perfect place. In fact, someone had a little line of poetry said, to dwell above with the saints in love, that'll be glory." To dwell below with some of the saints I know, that's a different story. <laughs> no, no. Church is not the absolute, but nor did he say for me to live as my ministry. Across this great congregation of many people with ordained or lay ministries, but he, he was a minister of ministers, a pastor of pastors, but he didn't say for me to live as my ministry. <laughs> in fact, that reminds me of a, of a picture I saw in a newspaper several years ago. Uh, There was a man driving one of those huge tanker trucks uh, that delivers petrol, gasoline. He was sitting on the cab with his head in his hands in dejection because he had run out of gas delivering the gas. (laughs) Literally. That happens in ministry. If you make ministry your ultimate, (laughs) you'll run out of energy. No, Paul put the only name there that belongs there, the only inexhaustible person for me to live is Christ. Now I want to hand you practically some, some things about what a one-thing person can enjoy, and I'll sit down. A one-thing person is able to overcome life's inevitable disappointment. If you understand why Paul is, where Paul is when he wrote these words, this thank you note from a a prison in Rome, you'd understand that. His great anticipation had been to come to Rome, teach the Roman church that he didn't found, take up a love offering and march off the map with the gospel all the way to Spain. That was his anticipation. But his situation was one of incarceration. He was in prison. He'd said a couple of years before, I appeal to Caesar. And any Roman citizen could say that. You had to wait a long time. And he'd been waiting under house arrest and then prison. Disappointment. It isn't what Paul expected. You know, every now and then as an itinerant preacher, after I preach, someone will come up to me and say, well, Joel, that's all well and good. But you just don't understand my situation. And they say it as if they were the only person in history who had a situation. Let me assure you, all God's children got a situation. And life brings disappointments. But look at what Paul says. He says, Oh, don't worry about me back there at Philippi. Thank you for the offering. But what's happened to me being in prison? has actually furthered the gospel. It's a beautiful word in the Greek New Testament. It points to someone marching in front of an army, cutting away through. Can march forward as well. He says, just because I'm here, the gospel has a new elevation. He says, the whole Praetorian Guard has heard it. That's like the secret service in the United States. It was the crack troops who guarded the emperor himself. Can you imagine what it was like to be chained to Paul four hours at a time? I, I, I like to imagine. Here's Lepidus. He's been chained to Paul. Maxentius has come to relieve him. That's the way the Romans kept their prisoners, chained to, to somebody four hours at a, at, at, at a time. I can hear Lepidus say, Max, you just better get ready. I've never heard anyone talk about one thing as much as this man's talked to me for four hours. He's told me that he was on a road to Damascus one day and he saw a light brighter than the sun and he heard a voice and it was the risen Jesus Christ. You better get ready, Max, because all you're going to hear is about this man named Jesus. Those chains became electric chains and the message of Christ went through that whole select group. But look what else he says. He also says everywhere else to all the rest. Here at the center of the empire when the senators were standing in their gravitas, their dignity, they were talking about this little itinerant Jew named Paul who says God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. When the women went to the Agora to do their daily shopping, they said, have you heard about this prisoner who says Jesus has been raised from the dead? He says, everywhere else. The little children playing their games on the strided pavement. We're talking about Jesus. just because I'm here the gospel has a new advance. In the face of his inevitable disappointments, it wasn't where he wanted, it wasn't the way he wanted to be there. He said, because I can write over it for me to live is Christ. It's transformed. Have you ever considered what people do when they're in prison with their time? In between World War I and II in the Weimar Republic in Germany, there was a young man. He lived on the streets some and in night shelters. He sold handmade postcards to support himself. <laughs> he finally tried to overthrow the government. And Adolf Hitler was put in prison. He wrote a book called Mein Kampf, My Struggle. Someone counted the words in that and counted the lives lost in World War II and said for every word in that hateful bigoted book, 200 people lost their lives. On the other hand, you put Paul in prison <laughs> and you get Ephesians, <laughs> Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, letters that give life to this very day. You see, you can put the prison the man in a prison. You don't have to put the prison in the man. I was thinking about that just up here at Bedford, that Tinkerer, that repairman of pots and pans and things. Bunyan, 12 years in prison on the pylon of a bridge, and yet out of that came Pilgrim's Progress. You see, when you can write over life's circumstances, for me to live is Christ. Crushingly disappointing circumstances. Can be transformed... In the strangest of ways, <laughs> I think uh, about a couple of paintings I saw earlier this week. At Regis Park College at Oxford, they have a painting of a young William Carey and an old William Carey, the the father of the modern world mission movement, up here at a little village called. Uh, Kettering not all that far from here he stood up as a young man and said God is calling me to go to India and one of the elders in the church said sit down young man if he wants to save the Indians he'll save them without you but he went anyway and when Carey got there, he raised the money to get a printing press. He translated the Bible into the indigenous language, ready to print it. When a terrible power fire consumed his press, melted the type into melted lead, burned up all the paper. He sent a telegram back to his pastor at Kettering, Andrew Fuller, and said, all is lost. About a month later, his pastor wrote him said, that fire was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. He says, it's taken your mission work off the back page of the London papers and put it on the front page. Everybody wants to help you. Disappointment transformed. There's an inevitability about life. In our finitude and mortality and limitedness and sinfulness, life in this flesh is going to yield disappointments. And you're either going to write over them for me to live as Christ and see them transformed or they can shrink your soul. (sighs) The power of being a one thing person transforms disappointments. But wait a minute. Let me lean into this another way before I sit down. The power of being a one thing person enables you to deal with difficult relationships. I have an expectation out of the hundreds of people here or beyond here that somebody will get up and go to work in the morning for someone whose God given task seems to be to irritate you. <laughs> Difficult relationships. Did Paul face that? Oh, did he? Wouldn't it be enough to be in prison for preaching the gospel? Wouldn't you think that the members of the local church around you would be encouraging you, sustaining you, bringing you things? Look what Paul says. He says, some preach Christ from envy and strife and some from goodwill. (laughs) The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, hoping to add affliction to my chains. There were some people in the church at Rome who just outside his open jail cell were slandering him, (laughs) presenting him in false light, misrepresenting him or his motives just to make the manacles cut into his wrists or the chains cut into his fetters, into his ankle bones just to irritate him. And he was a prisoner for Christ, and these were people in the church. We don't know who they were. Maybe they were founders of the church at Rome. Green-eyed jealousy is not altogether strange from the church. They were jealous of this man who wrote Romans, and now this Johnny-come-lately who shows up out of nowhere. Or maybe they were the Judaizers, those Jews who followed Paul everywhere he went, and when a Greek would become a Christian and stop worshiping Zeus and go to the house church and worship Jesus, these legalists would come and say, Oh, no, 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 you're no Christian unless you become a Jew first. They followed Paul everywhere he went and tried to undo it. We don't know who they were, but somebody was speaking just to irritate him. What's Paul's response? Bitter? Angry? No, no, no. Look what he says. (laughs) He says, I rejoice and I will rejoice if anybody's saying anything good about Jesus. You want to write down a formula for misery? I can tell you how to be miserable. If you want to write down how to be miserable, wear your feelings on your sleeves and just dare everybody to irritate you. That prophecy will come true. (laughs) But the apostle Paul, when he said, for me to live is Christ, that became the grid through which everything in his life passed. And he said, even though there's people who were preaching Christ out of false, spurious, malignant, and malicious motives... If there's anything good about him, I rejoice, and I will rejoice. Clarence McCartney told the story about one of those early want-to-be transatlantic flyers. That is, the, those who wanted to be the first person to fly across the Atlantic without landing. A number of people tried it before Charles Lindbergh did it and landed in Paris, among those early ones, there was a man who took off in a fragile, primitive, single engine, tiny plane. And as he gained altitude, he heard a, he heard a noise scratching back up under the, the cockpit. And he saw insulation falling off the wires. It was cloth insulation then. He deduced that it was a stowaway rodent, a rat somehow chewing on the cloth insulation and he knew it was either going to be him (laughs) or the rat. So he did all he could do. Out over the ocean, he took the plane higher and higher and higher until it got into an atmosphere where the rat couldn't live and the rat fell out in the bottom of the cockpit. You know, I'm tempted to make a very bad pun But I think there's somebody here today with something chewing on you, (laughs) eating away at you. Somebody. I can assure you the only way to deal with that is take it up into an atmosphere that is higher and higher. And do you say for me to live is Christ? See, 153 times the apostle Paul used the phrase in Christ. Preposition and name. I'm a man in Christ. That grammatically is called the locative of sphere. It means it pictures a sphere and you're inside that sphere and that sphere, that globe, is Christ. It's like a bird being in the air and the air in the bird. (laughs) A fish in the sea and the sea in the fish. Paul said, I'm in him and he's in me. And when you're in that atmosphere, nothing can change difficult relationships like that. If you're trying it another way, come close to me a minute. If you're trying it another way, how's it working for you? <laughs> in Christ. But wait a minute. Let me lean into this one more way and I'll sit down. This is the most important of all. Being a one thing person not only transforms disappointments, it enables you to thrive even in difficult relationships, but it enables you to face future uncertainties. It would really be to gild the lily and to say the unnecessary to say we're living in a moment of incredible future uncertainty. We've already prayed this morning internationally for what seems to be on every hand. And that doesn't even begin to address our own personal uncertainties of health and employment and mortality and who knows. We are saturated with uncertainties. Well, here's Paul. Where is he? He's not in some ivory tower when he writes this. He's in a filthy prison in Rome. He's waiting for a verdict to come from Nero, the Caesar. If you read Suetonus' life of the Caesar, you'll see that Nero was a nutcase. Crazy. A crazy ruler, and he was waiting for Nero to say thumbs up or thumbs down. Well, is he is he overwrought? Is he fretful? No, no, no. Look, look what he writes. The Philippians hasn't seen them any ten years in a decade. He says, look, oh, no, no, no. He says in verse twenty-two, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. He said, if Nero lets me out of here, I'm going to write Second Philippians and Third Philippians. I'm going to go plant a church in Spain. I'm going to minister here in Rome. But but if he doesn't, he says, I am hard pressed between the two. He says, I desire to depart. I'd like to loose the ropes that hold my craft to the dock of time and sail out from the harbor of time into the sea of eternity. I'm ready to go. In fact, he uses a rare triple Triple superlative. He said that would be far, far, far better. Ready to stay. Ready to go. (laughs) Because he can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be or not to be were equally good to him. You know, over in Texas, if nobody knows any other Shakespeare, they know that line, to be... (laughs) Uh, not to be. It got all the way over to Texas, you know. Hamlet may be uh, Shakespeare's most vivid character to me. I mean, you know, there, there he is. He, he's thinking about his friend York, that skull, and he's thinking of the mess that he's in. Uh, his daddy has appeared on the roof of the castle and said, my brother killed me and married your mother, and I want you to avenge my death. Well, if Hamlet does that, he's got to live with murdering his uncle, leaving his mother twice a widow, and goodness knows what else. That doesn't look good. (laughs) But on the other hand, if he takes his life, which he's considering, like his sister Ophelia, he faces the raw red throat of death and judgment. For Hamlet, to be is bad and not be (laughs) is bad. Both options, bad. Paul turns that upside down on its head. He says, if I be, I get to serve Christ more. Another church, another letter. Down the road, there's another Lydia or Lois or Eunice or Timothy. Another jailer in some Roman jail. But if I not be, it's to be in the presence of the one whom, having not seen, I love. You know, as we like to ask people about their philosophy, how's it working for them? Well... The day came when the word came down to Paul. I like to think that the Roman soldier who came to tell him had become a believer. (laughs) And he pulled up the grate off that Mamertine prison and looked down into its filth in the dark dungeon and said, Brother Paul, I've come to tell you what I don't want to tell you, and I've come to take you what I don't want to take you. And I suspect Paul blinked back the bright light of the Mediterranean sun searing his eyes and says, Look, Max, I told you. For me to live is Christ, and to die is the game. And they pulled up out of that rotten prison, the man who wrote Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians, tied his hands and took him out the south gate. You can still walk on the cobblestones at the traditional place. It's called Three Springs. There was a henchman with a great howdyard axe. My imagination, he said, Paul, face up or face down. And Paul said, face up. Eyes wide open. Nothing over your head now. And for a moment, it was the flash of the light of the sun on the blade of that axe. But in the next moment, it was the light of the Son of God. And his eyes opened in that place where there's no more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. Where forever we'll sing praises to the great I Am and live in the light of the risen Lamb. And Paul said, indeed, to live is Christ and to die is One thin moment and there he was. (laughs) That's why we're reading this this morning. Oh, there's a lot of other ancient writers around. Herodotus, father of history. I bet there's not a million people in the world right now reading Herodotus. I just bet you. Thucydides, Euripides, the Greek, Greek, I bet you there's not a million people around this planet this morning reading them. But all over this planet today, hundreds of millions of people will read words written by the man who said for me to live is Christ and to die is gain and there's power in those words that gives life. I've got to sit down, but but come close to me just a minute, just like as you'd me. What if you had to fill in the blank for me to live is, and there's a blank, and you were absolutely, totally transparent and honest? I'd pray that the Holy Spirit this moment would make everyone here honest. If you had to say for me to live is, what would you fill in the blank? <laughs> I wonder if somebody'd put the name of another human being, a mortal person. See, some folks think what ought to go in that blank is some relationship, and they're relationship junkies. They're always looking for ultimate meaning from another relationship. So you think you've met Mr. Right, but he turns out Mr. Half Right. <laughs> no, no human relationship. Belongs in that. In fact, let me tell you this. If you try to get everything from another human relationship, you'll wear the whole thing out. It won't work. Others there's a career. I've given myself to this career. I'm fascinated. I must, I must make this career. Let me assure you, in our cyber world, where whole careers are coming and going and entire disciplines are here and gone, that's not going to work. Someone, and I'm an, I'm an educator, I teach at a large research university, far be it from me to belittle education, but I've known people who think if I could just get one more degree, I'll find meaning in life. And they're literally dying by degrees. <laughs> because they think if I could just, there's only one name that belongs in that blank. And that's for me to live Is Christ he's the inexhaustible person you bring your thimble to him he's the Pacific Ocean there's more than enough of him to go your problems are like a molehill he's Mount Everest he's the only name that belongs there and you're going to have peace purpose meaning well-being and eternity if you put that name in that blank, if you filled it in honestly, whose name would be there? I want to ask you to bow with me in this balcony, all around, right up to the top. These transepts, this lower floor. I'd like each of you for just a moment to be in her or his own private prayer chapel. I know we pray for one another, but right now, just you, you and the Lord, you and Jesus, you, you. you and God there's somebody here there's a voice beyond my voice speaking to you it's not this it's not this traveling Texas preacher and you know it there's a voice beyond my voice it may be quiet it may be a whisper it may be a shout but way past me somebody's speaking to you it's the Holy Spirit He's already been working in your life, the holy person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And I wonder in a moment of absolute honesty, transparency with God, would you answer the question, whose name is in that blank in your life? For me to live is. You know, some people say for me to live is me or is I. Oh my. For me to live is the next moment of pleasure I can grab. Oh, no. Pleasures are like poppies spread. The flower is picked. The bloom is shed. Or like a snowflake fallen on the river, a moment white, then gone forever. Pleasure doesn't last. I don't know what's in the blank, but I have it to feel like in this balcony around and on this lower floor there are some who'd like to put a new name there, the name Jesus.